Welcome to the Concord Online Podcast. Each week, we're going to be bringing you sermons from Concord to be a resource for you to live on mission with us to inspire people to follow Jesus. Grab your Bible. Let's go to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. We want to spend this day thinking about, man, how God might want to use us to make an impact in the lives of others. This fits so naturally in our Ask Me Anything series. We've been in a series of sermons these last few weeks that I've been answering your questions. So many of you sent in questions about how do we stand against some of the cultural ideologies and yet care for people with the gospel message? How do we kind of navigate this water that we're in when it comes to things like CRT and the woke movement and, and still care for people? Like, what does that look like? And so today, from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, I really want to try to argue for a, a gospel-centered approach to compassion, care, and, and mercy ministry. You know, in our day, we have to be very clear as biblical Christians that we're not with certain cultural movements. Things like critical theories are bombarding us. Most well-known would be critical race theory that plays itself out in many ways or is closely aligned to this movement that has become known as this woke movement in the culture. And, and we need to understand the biblical posture is we stand against these ideologies because the Bible truly teaches that people should be evaluated not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's been so well said. It's, it's this idea that, you know, we care for people not because of skin or circumstances, but because of Jesus who died. Like he is the foundation for our caring. Regardless of the cultural whims, we're we're bound by Scripture to care for people and meet the needs of others as we're able. And look, church, a, a healthy church, a healthy church, I believe, will be known as a minister of mercy in its community. That the healthy churches are churches that people know, like, like there I, I can find help and there they will meet their needs. They're, they're not going to kind of go through this journey of, of enablement or entitlements, they're just going to help me and serve me and teach me about Jesus. You see, gospel-centered mercy ministry, it's, it's not enablement or entitlements, it's love in the name of Jesus. So I was wrestling through this this week, I couldn't help but Think back to like places like Luke 10. Remember Luke 10, Jesus tells a story that we now know as the Good Samaritan. It's a story about a man that was on a road coming up to Jerusalem from Jericho. Last time we were in Israel, we drove this road and went this way. It's a desert road. It is an arid place. It is a difficult place. And Jesus tells the story about this man who was left for dead in the ditch and the religious people passing him by and the Samaritan stopping to minister. But we need to understand today the perspective that we should take up if we're going to have a gospel-centered mercy ministry. It's that we live on the Jericho Road. Like there are people in the ditch all around us. There are people that are getting evicted from their housing. There are people that are 
homeless. There are people that are hungry. There are people facing mounting medical debts. There are elderly folks outliving their savings accounts. You say, that happens here? Won't you just come volunteer at the receptionist's desk one day? Because every day, multiple people at the doors of this church going, I just need some help. And we have to answer the question from a biblical foundation, how are we going to compassionately care? How are we going to show mercy when the needs are so overwhelming? You see, I believe we've got to squarely and biblically look at our neighbors lying in the ditch and extend the compassionate, merciful hand of Christ to them. Look, government has tried and it has messed it up and it will continue to mess it up because the ministry of mercy and the ministry of care was a ministry that God entrusted to the church when he ordained the church. Like this is ours. Government has tried to solve a spiritual problem with politics and that will never happen. One author said it well. He he said the ideology of the left believes in big government and social reform will solve social ills. He said, while the right believes big business and economic growth will do it. The left expects a citizen to be held legally accountable for the use of his wealth, but totally autonomous in other areas like sexual morality. But the right expects a citizen to be held legally accountable for the use of his wealth. The North American idol, which this author defines as radical individualism, lies beneath both ideologies. And Christians see either a solution as, or Christians see either solution as fundamentally humanistic and simplistic. Like he's like, neither side of the aisle get this right. And the reason that politics cannot serve this problem is because this is a spiritual problem. The real problem is defined by Paul in Ephesians 6, verse 12, where the scripture says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Like this is a spiritual battle. The redistribution of wealth nor economic growth can win this fight. We must fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. And the only institution on earth who has spiritual authority and spiritual weapons is the church of Jesus Christ. And we have outsourced our responsibility of gospel-centered care and mercy ministry to others for far too long. And if we want to see God move in our day, I believe we've got to pick it back up again. And we've got to be the hands and feet of Jesus, that those that are serving as 2 Corinthians 5 ambassadors, gifted with the message of reconciliation, walking from victory, not for victory, from victory because Jesus came up out of that grave. And so when we study the text, like Micah 6, it's helping us answer this question, like like how do we actually do it? Not how do we know about it, but how do we do it? How do we do compassion, care, and mercy ministry? How How do we stay centered on the gospel and not drift into foolishness? It's by anchoring our lives by the truths found in scriptures. So stand with me and let's study Micah 6, verse 8. It's a big day around here. We get all these guests, and I got a rug. <laughs> you all see this thing? This is amazing. 
like cushion on my feet. So if I get off the rug today, I'm probably going to be out of bounds. So I'll try to stay on the rug. (laughs) Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. This verse, the reason I picked this verse for us to study, we could have picked so many different passages that describe compassion, care, and mercy ministry, but, but this passage is not one describing it, but it is one that is prescribing it. This is a prescriptive text. This is a text where God is telling Israel, live like this. The, the scene here in Micah chapter 6 is super interesting. Put it in your mind's eyes like a courtroom God being the judge and the people being the defendant. And so Israel is coming up against the judge and is recognizing that they've done wrong. Israel is acknowledging that they've missed the mark. They're saying like, yes, like we cannot believe these things have happened. And the Lord is a bit exasperated with Israel. Like the Lord is is like, I've done all that I can do for you. Yet you've rejected me. He, he's saying, like, I brought you out of Egypt. If you studied all of Micah up to chapter 6, I brought you out of Egypt. I led you in the wilderness. I protected you from your enemies. What more do you want from me? Yet you have turned your back on me. And so in verses 6 through 8 of Micah chapter 6, the people are answering God. And the people are acknowledging, yes, they've sinned. The people are acknowledging that, that they have blown it and messed up, and so they're trying to answer the question, what can we do about it? And their natural response was to try and get more religious. I mean, look at it in verses six through eight. Like They're going like, like what if we bring more sacrifices? What if we bring more costly sacrifices? What if we get involved in more religious activities? And God's like, I'm not interested in your sacrifices. I'm not interested in you becoming more religious. I'm interested in you doing what I'd called you to do in the beginning. Like verse eight is a call of God for obedience to the repentant hearts of the Israelites. He's like, do this, justice, kindness, and walking humbly with God. Like that's it. He said, stop trying to make yourself feel better by being more religious. Do you know, like you can medicate your sin with religion, but you can never solve the problem of your heart by religion. Like some people, some of us, we come to church just like it's neosporin for our sin to try and make it feel better for just a moment, but what Jesus offers you is not an ointment for your skin, but a heart transplant for your soul. And far too many of us, we're just sitting around like happy with getting patched back up again when Jesus wants to transform us. And that's exactly what the Israelites were doing here. They're like, man, patch me up. And God's like, I'm looking for so much more than a patch. I'm looking for you to walk in obedience, allow me to transform your life. And so here he gives these three prescriptions that help us see how we can be engaged in ministering in the name of Jesus and do it from a gospel-centered place. First, he said, do justice. Do 
justice that is specific. It's like this is an action. Like, I've told you what is good and what the Lord requires. Do justice. Doing justice is not a superficial knee-jerk activism. Like, it's not just this, you know, run to the next thing and run to the next thing. You know people like this. I know them as well that, man, they just run from from what they perceive as injustice to injustice to injustice. They're always upset. It's just what day of the week is it to what they're going to be upset about. Like they always are kind of running the alarm bells. They're just kind of trying to stir things up. They love to spur. Stir. You all know that stirring the pot is not a spiritual gift, right? Like some of you, you act like you're holier than thou because you can stir things up. But man, that's not the gospel. Like, like everything branded justice is not justice. But God does tell us here to do justice. But the same God that is telling us to do justice, let me remind you, in places like 1 Thessalonians 5, is telling us to test everything and hold fast to what is good. So just because someone says this is injustice doesn't mean that we should receive that as injustice. We should test it by the scripture and hold on to what is good. So there's this balancing act that we need to live in. And some of our mistakes when it comes to doing justice in Jesus' name is we've labeled things injustice that just simply are not according to the scripture. Listen to me. It is not unjust for there to be a right and wrong. God determines what is right, and God determines what is wrong. And it is not injustice for something that is sin to be called sin. And some people want to be like, man, you can't tell me. Like, you can't tell me. Come on, man. Let them blue lights get behind you, and they're going to tell you. See, there's, there's authority in all of our lives. The question is just, what is the ultimate authority in your life? And in our culture, in our day, people want to be their own authority. But for a Christ follower, the scripture is their only authority. And there's the difference. So it's not injustice to call sin, sin. It's that we're living under a different authority. And until we submit ourselves to God's authority, we'll never truly and rightly understand the justice and the grace and mercy that God gives us through Jesus Christ. You see, mercy comes after justice. It was God's justice that nailed Jesus to the cross because of our sin. But it's God's mercy that he offers salvation to us through his victory over the grave and resurrection from the dead. You see how this works? Like there would be no need for mercy if there was not justice. And so this, this tension and this rhythm we live in is that we're called to do justice, but we're called to do this justice with mercy and grace. The problem in our day is almost everything that doesn't go our way is considered injustice. I was at that ball game last night. You know the one I'm talking about, where the orange team whipped the other team. You're welcome. <laughs> but let that official blow his whistle and call a foul on that orange team. The whole stands are highly offended. I mean, the guy knocked him four rows into the stands. He pro it was probably a foul. But it can't be on us. The refs, they're terrible. Like, I love going to a ball game with my 15-year-old. He's actually never seen a game where the refs were any good, if you listen to the people around us. But the problem is that, that we, we want to label something 
unjust if, if it just doesn't go our way. Can I remind you what Paul said in Romans 3.10? In Romans 3.10, Paul said, there is no one righteous, not one. So the reason we feel so, the reason we feel like the world is against us and there's so much injustice is because we're becoming readily aware of our sin and that we don't measure up and we don't know how to deal with that, so we lash out at everybody else. You will be amazed at how you can live your life without this sense of offense when you begin to understand that you're a sinner and need a rescue by a holy God and you don't deserve anything. You receive God's grace for everything. So, so doing justice is living with a biblical view of right and wrong. Boyce points out in his commentary, he said, to act justly is more important for it does not mean to talk about justice or to get other people to act justly. Like justice, to do justice means to do the just thing yourself. And so if we are going to be people of compassion, care, and mercy ministry that is gospel-centered, it's going to be because we have an appropriate biblical worldview that shows us how to do justice. That is how to stand in the midst of right and wrong and declare what is right. That is the outworking of doing justice. We stand between right and wrong. We say, this is right and this is wrong, and we fight for right we fight for what is good. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, the scripture says, The rock, his work is perfect in all his ways, our justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So when we stand in this moment in culture and we say, this is right and this is good, we're declaring that God is right, God is good, and God is just. How about Psalm 89, verse 14? The scripture says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Oh, see this picture. Like, I, I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the Psalms because it gives us this picture of the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. And what is before him is love and faithfulness. Man, I love that about God. Like, see that picture. That makes me want to be in his presence. You know, that makes me want to be with him. Like, he's going to be just, he's going to be righteous, and what's before him is faithfulness and love. So there's never been a time when God has been unjust. It is against his changing nature to be anything but just. Adam and Eve saw the just, justice of God when they were punished because of their sin in the garden. But even in that justice, think about it, they experienced God's mercy because God gave them clothes to cover their shame. God's justice requires him to deal with sin. There's so many instances in scripture when he dealt with sin. You think about the flood. You think about the plagues in Egypt. You think about the destruction of Ahab and Jezebel's house. You think about the Babylonian captivity. Like all of these were God's examples of justice. And even so to the cross. Like the cross was his Justice, the sins of the world were laid on Jesus and Jesus' death became the payment or the satisfaction or the propitiation of God's justice. Listen to Romans 3 verse 25. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show 
God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he'd passed over former sins and it was to show this righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Like Paul's like, God is just and he's also the justifier. He could not ignore sin. Justice required there be a penalty for sin but he sent his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty of that sin. This is how we understand justice is through the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus' sacrifice was the payment for our sin. So Jesus' sacrifice allows us not just to do justice, but to love kindness. To love kindness. Your translation may say, Love mercy, it's the same idea here. It's just a different English translation from the Hebrew language. The Hebrew word that is translated kindness or or mercy is, is a word that simply means faithful covenant love. Right, so, so what he's trying, what the interpreters are trying to help us understand is like we're called here to do justice and then secondly, we're called to love faithful covenant love. We're called to love kindness or love mercy. And these, these pictures are, are very similar word, word pictures to what we experience like in a marital vow, this faithful covenant love. And so it's this whole commitment. It's this total engagement. You know, I mean, when, when you get married to someone, you might even have said the words on your marital vow, like in sickness and in health, like you're promising your love toward them. You guys are getting married in 13 days. Like you're promising that your love toward them is not conditional. And that's here what God is calling Israel to. Like Micah the prophet's like, like put down this conditional understanding of love where if God blesses me, I'll love him. But if life is difficult, I'll do my own thing. And is that not the way most of us relate to God? Like when we're experiencing God's blessings, man, we're all in on God. But let life get a little difficult. Let something that we consider unjust happen to us. And man, we'll run away from the Lord until he does something better for us. And then we return to the Lord. Like why is that? Because we don't understand the nature of this like covenantal love that says like I'm loving you and I'm carrying out your mission no matter what happens to me. Your love for God, church, should not depend on the way you feel in the moment. It should depend on what Christ did for you on the cross at Calvary. And far too many are like, I just don't feel like it today. There's been a lot of Sundays I didn't feel like coming to work. But I thought, man, I only work one day a week. I better go. (laughs) Like, we, we, we all know how often our feelings betray us. We all know. How often we may like, I just don't want to. But if you let that become the barometer of your spiritual life, the enemy will eat your lunch, man. Like loving kindness is this idea of this faithful covenant love, this understanding of God's mercy that is not dependent on my circumstances, that I'm kind or I'm merciful, not because of the situation coming at me, but because of the God who has saved me. And this is what it means to love kindness. It's, it's actually a true test of faith. I could show you, but I don't, I don't have time. I, I could show you throughout the prophetic writings, showing mercy or loving kindness was, was used as a test for genuine faith. 
And so like if you're a person that, that like it's difficult for you to be merciful to others, like there is a heart problem going on that you need to check with Jesus. Because this is a genuine test of being a Christian. This is a true sign of faith. In the New Testament, we, we, we understand about it in places like 1 John 3. Listen to this. 1 John 3, if, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You want me to read that one again? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Like he's describing mercy. He's describing kindness, deed, and truth. So we, we can't ignore the needs of our neighbors. We, we can't close our hearts because we're abiding in God's love. How about James 2, verse 13? For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's, let's, let's try that again. For judgment is without mercy, like no mercy in the judgment to the one who has shown no mercy. So if I'm not showing mercy to others, I'm not going to receive a whole lot of mercy from God. But mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he does not have works? Can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Like you notice this, like the loving kindness, the loving mercy part of the Christian life is where faith becomes active. It's where faith becomes active. Like these calls, it's not that they're working to earn God's love, it's that they're doing good deeds because of what they've experienced in Christ. Every other world religion says that you have to do this good stuff to earn God's love. But Romans 5 verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, God sent Jesus to die for us. So the message of Christianity is not do good works to earn God's love. The message of Christianity is God came down to rescue you while you were filthy, nothing, and nobody so that you can carry his mission and do good works and the watching world would see God and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, the ministry of mercy began at the fall. The, the effects of sin were immediately known. Things like sickness and hunger and natural disasters and social injustice and even death itself. Like this is result of the fall. And from the very beginning of time, people have been wrestling with how do you do this and what do you do of this and how do you meet these needs? Job. Job lived before Moses even wrote the law. So before Moses wrote the first four books of the Old Testament, like Job lived, and Job said, the ancient one in Job 29, verse 16, he said, I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. I don't really know what all was going on, but it sounds like there were some teeth on the ground. But Job here is going like, like, I stood against injustice so that people could flourish. Now, when God gave the law to Moses and he wrote the first four books of the Old Testament, like it included care for the foreigner. 
It it required the poor to receive more than a handout. There, There were needs met. Isaiah 61, verse 1, the scripture says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prison doors of those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Like Isaiah is saying this in Isaiah 61, like like the spirit of the Lord is coming to do this. And what's so interesting about Isaiah 61 verses one and two is that is the Old Testament text that Jesus used to preach his very first sermon. So Jesus is saying like the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Like I have come to do these things. Think about the miracles of Jesus' ministry. Think about his feeding ministry. Think about how he was always caring for people and The call of Israel from Micah was that type of call. And it wasn't a call out of duty, it was out of love. This call is a call to obedience because of what God has done for us in Christ. This call is not a call like, well, if I got to. It's that we get to. We get to do these things. And so I'm so thankful for our compassion and mercy ministries of our church. Like one of my favorite ministries that kind of we have in our church is our disaster relief ministry. It's a true compassion and mercy ministry. And I encourage you, like if you are handy with a chainsaw or you can take something and fix it or you can make something out of nothing or if you're used to getting the Alabama state bird out of the tree, you know that is, that's a trampoline. All right, like if you're used to like doing those things, like you need to go out to the missions area and talk about disaster relief and sin relief because that's my favorite. Like it is a true compassion and mercy ministry that we do here at our church. Like I love it. We go when everything's falling apart and we stay not until it's back together again, but we stay until the gospel has been proclaimed. But my favorite, by far, my favorite partner ministry that we have at our church is Compassion. You may know it as Compassion International, and and I want you to know, like, look. Man, I'm so thankful for the 500 of you that are sponsoring children. But I see those stats, and there's been some of us that have kind of fallen off the train. And there's a lot of us that haven't really even participated. Since the last time we had a Compassion Sunday, there's over 200 folks who have joined our church. And so if you're one of those 200 folks that have joined our church, today is your day. If you're not sponsoring a child through Compassion, $43 a month, you say, man, Pastor, that's a lot right now. I know it's a lot right now. It's going to be a meal or two out that you're going to have to give up. It may mean that you run by play it again sports for the ninth baseball bat your kid has this summer. You know, like it's going to mean you have to make some choices and do some things differently. But I've seen firsthand the work of compassion. I'm telling you, man, it's changing lives. And it's done through the local church, which I love. These kids are coming to a local church. They're being ministered to. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of times there's a health clinic there. There's a school there, all these things. And I got to speak with one compassion child not too long ago. I guess it was back in October, November, somewhere in there. I can't remember when we were there, Kevin. But but I said, what is your compassion sponsorship? What has it meant to you? As this child I was speaking with was about to go to college. And tears welled up in his eyes. Through a translator, he said to me, Pastor, there's no way I go to college without compassion. My sponsor has given the resources so I could get the training so that I can pass my test and go to college. 
And I just thought, man, like, where else can we have that much of an impact for $43 a month? This young one knows the Lord and loves the Lord, was involved in their church, and was going to college and wanted to be a pharmacist. I said, why a pharmacist? Because, he said, because I watch people die from things that I know we have medicine to help them with. Look, we're talking real ministry when we're talking compassion. Like getting you and your resources to the very, very front lines. And we may never be able to provide equal outcomes for all people because of sin's effect in the world, but we can work to provide equal opportunities for all those who are made in the image of God. And my prayer is that young kids in Peru can have a hope for a future because of the work that you've been doing. And you've been doing good work, church. Listen to me, in the last two years, you've made an impact in Peru. We have specifically partnered with Peru. You have saved and served 108 mothers and babies. And those survival centers that you heard in the video, like you have rescued and you have served and you have saved 26 babies, 95% of which were born at a normal birth weight. You say, well, don't they all like that? Not in Peru. It's because of the work that you were able to do through your survival centers that got these moms at a healthy place that they could deliver healthy babies. Like 29 babies have kind of been growing and now have taken on spark, uh, partners here in our church, like sponsors that are, that are caring for them and, and ministering to them. 14 babies a month, think about this, 14 babies a month are being treated for malnutrition. They just don't have enough food. But when they come to these survival centers that you're supporting, I mean, we can meet their needs and see them catch up and watch them flourish. And so this is an opportunity for us to love kindness and do justice. Like this is an opportunity for us to kind of move past some of this, this mentality that has been in our church for generations. Where I'm just going to write a check to a missions offering and I'm never going to know where it's going to go. Like you're still going to have an opportunity and you're still going to like have a, have a direct step, but you're going to know your child. Like Samuel. David handed me another child earlier and I couldn't pronounce his name. So I said, David, go find me someone that I can pronounce. And he said, I'll, I'll go find a Sam. So here's Sam. But this is a real child who you're going to receive a real note from. And you're going to get to write back to them. Bridget and I, we, we sponsor two other children, and uh, we may be picking up Sam today. Uh, but one of them's name is Jesus. I don't know how I got that one, but that's kind of fun. And, and so we write, and they respond. And we see their schoolwork and we encourage them and they thank us and we're like it's really not a lot but to them it's everything like this is what you can do and so today you're going to have an opportunity like like Samuel he's been waiting 184 days and I pray he didn't wait 185 Samuel he he lives in Peru his birthday is April 7th 2015 and he is a priority waiting child because he's been waiting so long. What, what if we sent Compassion home today and they're like, we didn't bring enough packets because this church is doing justice and loves kindness. 
Like, what if we just kind of took the extra step and said, man, like God is blessed. We've had incredible opportunities. I know things are, are not the way they used to be economically, but the truth is these are children and we have the opportunity to help them. So let's do justice today. Let's love kindness today and let's walk humbly with our God. Walk humbly with your God. Notice there at the end of verse 8, he's like, hey, you know, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. Like, this can't be something that we're puffed up and prideful about. Like, this is just what we do. This is part of being a Christian. I've told some friends on staff, like, I wish I could put in our church membership process that, like, you get in a Bible study group, then you, you know, begin to give, and you sponsor a child with compassion. Like, I wish I could just kind of make that a part of, like, this is just what we do. This is just how we do ministry. We're just doing it not so that we can get pats on the back, but so God can be glorified. Can I, can I tell you something I just don't understand? I don't understand why football players celebrate when they score touchdowns. Do they think the coach called a play that he didn't think was going to score a touchdown? Or I don't understand basketball players when they make a shot and they do this big celebration. Do they not think the coach put them on the court to make the shot? And I don't understand Christians who kind of go around puffed up and prideful when they're helping somebody. Because isn't that just what we're supposed to do? You see, walking humbly with our God is not idolizing the good we do. It's glorifying the God we serve. And many of us, we live our life wanting pats on the back for the good we do. But friends, if you do good and people glorify you for your good, you've received all the reward you'll ever receive. But if you do good and people leave from that moment glorifying that your father, God in heaven, then you receive all of heaven as your reward. So walking humbly with God, it, it takes a mindset change where we're just doing what we've been called to do because of the victory in our lives. We're scoring touchdowns, we're making three-pointers, we're hitting home runs, spiritually speaking, to glorify God with our life. And so Micah is telling the people that the reason they keep falling into sin is because they've become impressed with themselves. And this is danger zone for Christians. This is the effects of the Pharisees that we become impressed with what we've accomplished rather than burdened by the mission of God. Listen to me, man. Like I am so burdened by the mission of God in our generation. I don't, be, I don't want there to be a single kid in Peru not sponsored so we can change that culture and those communities with the gospel of Christ. And I don't want there to be a single person to go to hell from Knoxville, Tennessee. Like, I am burdened. I unapologetically want to reach the city for Christ. Like, man, I, I, I am so motivated to see God work, but, but the motivation to see God work is not a motivation so that we could be in lights. I would rather no one know our name and this city be saved than everybody know our church and our city be lost. And so God's been doing some work on me in that. Just real transparency as we close. Like, like I've been wrestling through that because man, I so want to reach the city for Christ because to me that's winning. And I am super competitive. Like if you know me well, like you know that like I'm competitive about everything. On Monday of last week, Mia had a gymnastics meet in Sevierville, 
Pigeon Forge. And my parents came up. And so after the meet, they all wanted to go play putt-putt. My mom scored five holes in one, and she won. <laughs> I really struggled. <laughs> when I realized what was happening, like hole 15, I was like, what, what is going on? So we finished the round. It was just time for them to go back to Alabama. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so it was just time for them to go back. And, and then Bridget and the kids were like, Dad, we still want to ride go-karts. And I was, I was ready to go home. Uh, I was not happy. Uh, I've never lost a mom in anything. I even, I even brushed my teeth faster than her. I've timed it. <laughs> well, we go ride go-karts, just Cade, Mia, Bridget, and I. And me and I have that super fast double cart Super slow double cart, you know what I'm talking about? That good little girl needs to grow. It's time for her to get in her own cart so I can go fast again. <laughs> and I'm holding them off. I'm weaving everywhere. I'm holding them off, man. I'm holding them off, coach. I'm holding them off. And then right at the last minute, Cade slides by. He cheated. <laughs> and I have told him all week that he cheated. And we're going back to Pigeon Forge next Monday. But even in that this week, the Lord's been working on my heart. Like, bro, like, you have a problem if it bothers you that you lose a putt-putt. <laughs> but Lord, five holes in one, only got one. Mia got three. <laughs> that was my Tuesday morning prayer time. You thought I was praying for you. I was praying about putt-putt. But the Lord's been working that in my life. He's, he said, yeah, he's just been speaking to my soul. But John Mark, you've, you've been asking me to help you see the true win. And here's how the Lord's working in me. The true win is not you winning, but the true win is the mission being accomplished. And so for me, whether that's putt-putt or whether that's go-karts, which I'm hanging a lot of L's in lately, or whether that's celebrating other churches' victories in reaching our city, or whether it's watching you find your step with the Lord, I'm gonna choose to celebrate victories that lead to spiritual fruit because I think that's what it means to walk humbly with your God. See, some of us, we make humble, humility all about us. Well, I just want to become more. Like, true humility is celebrating the right victories. And I want to celebrate the victories of God. And there's some of us today, man, there's a victory waiting for you on this table. When you choose to let go of some of the resource that God has entrusted to you, and you choose to do justice and love kindness and sponsor a child. Some of you, there's victory for you when you choose to come to know Christ as Savior and Lord because you've heard the stories of Jesus but you've never understood like you're, you're one just trying to figure out what did God do for you God sent his son Jesus to pay sin's demand God, the, the sin in your life demanded justice and God put Jesus to death in your place and offers you salvation as a gift so that you can be reconciled to God the ultimate win Walking humbly with God, friends, is not losing your edge. It's not shrinking back from your competitive nature. It's not stopping your ambition. It's 
It's being a person of integrity. It's being authentic with your motivation and it's aligning your convictions with God, not culture. Like that's what it is to, to walk humbly. Like it's, it's integrity, it's, it's character, it's impact, it's being authentic, it's, it's being biblical so that God would be glorified through your life. Thanks for joining us this week on the Concord Online Podcast. If you have any questions surrounding today's sermon or simply want to learn more, you can do so at concordonline.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with each weekly release. 